Hey there, and welcome to the UX Growth Podcast, sponsored by Pulsatic, the service that's got your back when your website faces downtime. This is your go-to spot to dive deep into all things UX design. Here, we tackle the questions you've got about navigating the UX field, and we share a thing or two to help you grow in your UX journey. Each episode is all about making the tough stuff feel doable and inspiring you to take the next step in your career. Now, let's jump right into today's chat. Hi, this is the UX Growth Podcast, a podcast that helps people learn and grow in the UX design industry. I'm your host, Nick Mann. I'm here with another guest of season three, Amy Lima, founder of Diversify Design, a community supporting designers from historically underrepresented backgrounds and a previous designer of Amazon Music and Pinterest. Thank you so much, Amy, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So excited for this chat. Yes, I know. I'm always so excited to have new guests on to be able to learn from your background as well as learn from you as a person. So let's begin by, can you share us the path that led you to how you got into the UX design field? Absolutely. So my career started in the music industry. So I spent quite a bit of time across the different niches in the music industry, but found my groove in live entertainment and events. So I spent a lot of time producing live events from one-off concerts to full-blown festivals, as well as managing artists directly. And I felt that I always really loved being very close to the art and the creative process, right? And I was really mm -hmm. good at communicating different wants and needs between artists, their teams, and their fans. So I was always that liaison, like sitting in between those poles, which lent very well to that business, right? I was able to creatively problem solve on the spot to be able to meet the needs of the fans in the moment if something went unexpected or unplanned at a live event, for example. I was quick on my toes or if we were planning for an album release or an interesting digital marketing campaign. I was always quite good at thinking outside of the box. I was always very digitally native. So I was close to the ground of fandoms and what the fans wanted and craved. So I was able to leverage those insights there. All to say is I used a lot of the skills that I now use in my design process, but I was using it in a different medium. And it was really when I discovered product design as a discipline, the design and tech industry as a whole, that I felt it, I realized it was much more aligned with just how my brain works anyways. And it was just kind of that missing puzzle piece, right? Um, mm -hmm. Loved working in the music industry. It was a great starting point to my career. But I always say that, yeah, th these puzzle pieces just fit better, right? Um, just the way my brain works and how I go about problem solving and think through things and my, my entire craft design is is the perfect medium to explore that. Yeah, I think that's so cool because you came from a place of passion from how you understand other humans and to be able to combine that all together. That's a really magical spot where we want to go with our lives and as well as our careers. That's really cool how you found that. So yeah. One, yeah, one interesting thing I also like to know is how is your upbringing or global experiences influence your approach to design, if at all? My upbringing has really uh, in 
influenced my design process entirely, right? Like in every single way. Mm -hmm. Often when folks ask about just me and my design work, my experience, I always lead with my upbringing because it's been that influential to everything that I do and how I go about doing it. So I'm a first generation immigrant by way of Brazil. My parents immigrated to this country in the 70s. I'm their only child, only daughter, and we are the only folks in our family in the States. So everyone else in the family is a continent away, right? So like very nuclear Mm -hmm. family environment. And my parents are small business owners as well. So they came to this country when they were like 18 years old, started a business from scratch. So I grew up in that environment, right? In some ways, like isolated, but very self-sufficient, very entrepreneurial and very creative and outside of the box thinking, right? Very quick on your toes, very resourceful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have no other choice, right? When you're you're brought up in that way, or you're an immigrant yourself or child of immigrants, you're always thinking one step ahead or if this goes wrong, how are we going to counter counterbalance that? Like, what can we do to make this thing work and create like a fortress around anything that you're building? So I always grew up with that mentality, that grit, that tenacity, and just those creative problem solving skills, really um, thinking outside of the box. So again, I mentioned that that's how my brain works. It's how it's always worked is always clocking in like two steps ahead. And what about this way? And what if we twist this, turn it upside down and do it another way. Maybe that'll stick or if nothing else, it'll be an interesting story, right? Sometimes you do it for the story and the experience. It'll still be worth it that way. So all to say is it's influenced every every part of my approach to not only my design career, so how I entered this field, like very tenacious, fast and furious, like, cool, I'm going to dive in head first, bring in all my transferable skills. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how it's Mm going to work out, but I know it's going to work out. I know I'll be able to figure it out, right? Because if there's one thing I know, it's to figure it out. Like, that's just what was instilled in me from from day one and to my actual like day-to-day design work. So again, just how I go about thinking about problems, empathizing with users, seeking out different perspectives to problems or approaches. Like these are all things like I would do in my day-to-day life growing up. And even more granularly, just even the type of the type of design work that I am drawn to or have lent myself to like certain types of teams and products, very community driven, bringing people together, focused on social expression, speaking your truth. All of these are things that I held true, like values that were like very core to my upbringing as an only child growing up without family in the States outside of like my, both of my parents always seeking out community and different voices. And my home for a lot of that was online. I was very digitally native and very early to social media and all of these platforms seeking that out connecting people, bringing them together. All to say is I've I've found myself drawn to those types of products as well. And I can certainly trace a little string back to, back to my upbringing in that, that way as well. Yeah. That's so cool to be able to see where you come from and how that distills your experiences in UX field and how it all comes together. That's so fascinating to learn how other people come from all these different walks of life because we are all human and we are all trying to solve problems that other humans are having. So if there's one thing I really learned about talking to other designers across the world, is that we all are trying to solve the same problems. I think that was like really exciting. Yeah, and surprising I love for me that. to learn. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely love that. Yeah, honestly, I mean, it's it's just human psychology, right? Or like hierarchy of needs when when you boil down to it, like what are we really just constantly seeking as just sentient human beings? It's connection, it's safety and security and all the permutations of that. And at the end of the day, I think that's that's our job as designers is to like find creative and novel ways leveraging technology and like making people's lives easier with that technology. How can we make people feel safe and seen and secure and connected to each other? So that's really all it is. So I've heard the phrase, a deeply human approach to design. And I've heard similar words of like that too. So I'm just curious to, to know, like, what does that mean to you, Amy? Yeah, I love, yeah, I love saying deeply human. I think it's really easy to get lost in just like the process, like the formulaic, okay, like we're just like going through the work and it's it's pixels, it's screens, it can get very sterile very quickly. And it can be very easy to get detached from like the actual humanity that we're supposed to be serving and we're supposed to be building for. So when I say deeply human, I say that and, and try to honor that in myself and in the work constantly. So constantly reminding myself like, okay, cool. Who am I? What, why am I doing this really? Who am I doing this for? What is the purpose? What is the end goal? How is this going to help people? What do people want and need from this? How, how are they going to feel, right? How, how is it going to make them feel after they use if it's the product, the service, the granular feature, however many layers deep you want to get to it, just really tapping into that humanity um, and having that lead the way, both in the work itself and like what you're doing and your design process, having that inform it. And then on a more macro level, like your career. So like my design career and the products and teams and companies that I choose to work with, like how do I want to embody that value and everything that I do. So yeah, all encompassing, just like, yeah, deeply human, deeply rooted in just the humanity of us and yeah, what we're doing this all for. Yeah, I know. I imagine the listeners will love to hear an example of a project that you may have worked on in the past where like this, that design philosophy was apparent in your design decisions. I'm really curious to know if you, if you have any examples of that. Yeah, totally. So a really good example, yeah, is my work with Unconvo, which is, was a tiny little startup meant to serve the book community. So book readers, right? Mm -hmm. And what Unconvo aimed to do was connect book readers with each other in really interesting social reading experiences, right? So the hypothesis there that we then validated through user research. I talked to tons of book readers from super readers to casual readers. And the common theme there was that even for the most avid book readers, like people who read hundreds, literally hundreds of books a year, I was amazed. That's so incredible. It's a deeply personal experience, but even it being very personal, very specific to you, your preferences, it's still something that you Th that these folks wanted to share with others. They would all say unanimously, man, yeah, I wish I could just talk to someone about this book. I don't have friends in my immediate network who read these same books as me or genre or author. I wish I could find that community and engage in book discussions through that. So just those sentiments. Okay, you can sterilize it a little bit, toss it in the design process blender, 
and be like, oh, okay, that's the user need. That's the job to be done. And we're going through the steps to achieve that goal. But for me, I really held on to the stories and how people express that story, what their voices sounded, what their responses were, hearing about the time that they maybe tried to talk to their friends about a certain book, but they didn't, they hadn't heard of it before and how disappointed they were and how they tried to get those needs met at, on Goodreads or another product and were left feeling a little more alone and isolated in that moment. So just really thinking about the entire context in which folks were experiencing that problem and really taking myself there and seeing how we could use design as a tool to help solve for that. So throughout the entire design process, it would always go back to that moment, that gut-wrenching, damn, like people really want this. They really need this. What can we do to make that happen? And every design decision was really thoughtfully crafted around that. So facilitating connections in the app, being able to connect with readers by different parameters, but first and foremost, by the books you're reading, we created a concept called pair reading, which was quite interesting. You could simultaneously read books with like-minded readers and share book annotations with each other once you progressed through the book. So you're having synchronous discussions, but sharing really deep personal insights, but from different vantage points. So yeah, that's just a long-winded, long-winded response for just really rooting the entire design process around, yeah, the, the user perspective and journey and what that means to them and embodying that in the work, really. So yeah, I think I would say thoughtful, thoughtful design. My, my work has been described as that. And I think that's a microcosm of just that example I gave. It always looks a little something like that. Always calling out the users by their name when we're going through design crit or review and, hey, remember this story? That That's what influenced this flow or how we're thinking about this feature or this new format, this new way of thinking about this problem. Just always bringing it back there. Yes, I think the philosophy is it can be as big and complicated as you want it to be. So that's why I always feel like the words that you use to be able to describe it and using examples is always going to be fitting because that's how you are working best and being able to address the problems and think of the user's needs. I think that's exactly. very that's insightful and it's very much needed to know about as well as more than is necessary. It's always going to be helpful for people who may not know any different too. So I think that's also exactly. something very important to know too, because context is such an important factor that I feel a lot of people can skimp over because that's not, they don't, that doesn't feel natural to a lot of people, mm -hmm. especially when you're designing like a system. Absolutely. And yeah, I love the word context as well, because that's, yeah, one of the things that I try to root my work in as well is just the also the physical, or just, I guess, the multidimensional context in which folks are experiencing the product or the service, if that's a physical space, right? So in the context of Unconvo or book reading, very often people will read at night before bed, even that influenced the visual language of the app being in dark mode. And maybe you're, it's late at night and you're using a little bedside table lamp and that's how you're reading. And I wanted the app to reflect that if you're on the go or in like a crowded, chaotic environment, but the app is something a little more intimate and it's supposed to be like conversations and connection. Maybe there's a disconnect there. 
So always thinking about uh, or reminding yourself that what you create doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? People are experiencing this in their day-to-day lives. Day-to-day life isn't as neat and tidy as it might be on a fig jam board. It's a little bit messy and fluid. And how do you keep that in mind? Yeah. And and, and sort of consider that through the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we were going for our design projects, I'm curious to know that how do you navigate some of the difficult parts of it, such as like any ethical considerations or anything that can cause a work environment or anything based on the challenges it can be from a designer standpoint? I'd love to hear any of your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I always try to voice those concerns at the forefront be very forthcoming and I mean I say unafraid but it's okay to be a little afraid of like you can still yeah. be you can still be be a little scared or hesitant to speak up but so long as you still speak up with a shaky voice right what, what's the quote even if your voice trembles just say the thing and I've tried to to lead with that so if that's maybe in a project kickoff or a project is first introduced or a proposal, and I see something concerning, I'm very forthcoming, raising my hand in a room full of stakeholders and addressing that concern. Hey, have we considered this? Have we thought about the repercussions? Or hey, we've heard this sentiment from users or call out a very specific story. I think that's also why it's so important to to be close to your users and be able to hear from them directly, have those touch points so you can advocate for them in this way. Hey, this is what we heard directly from our users this seems in conflict with that. How do we feel about that tension? Do we think that this is a worthy trade-off? I have some concerns from a design perspective, but also the collateral damage that might result from this. And just being very honest. And at the end of the day, that's your job, right? As a designer. Mm-hmm. So I em- empower myself to to go down that route by reminding myself of that, of, hey, that's exactly what we're here for, is to identify that, call that out, could be a very honest oversight when folks didn't consider it. And they're like, oh yeah, wow, thanks for calling that out. You're right. Let's think twice about this. Maybe there is another way. And that's what collaboration is all about, right? And in the right environment, psychologically safe, building products that are very user-centered and ethically minded, it should be well-received, right? And respected. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, it's your duty as a designer. Absolutely. If something seems concerning, And you can see it having those unintended consequences and repercussions to definitely say something and try your best to advocate for a a better solution. And sometimes that means maybe designing something that wasn't optimal is something that you hope doesn't get built, but you do it for demonstrative purposes, right? Hey, this is what we said we wanted. This is how it might go, how it might look and behave. And these might be some of the consequences around it. So we can do that, or instead we can do go with these options and take it upon yourself to uh, visualize some, bring some alternatives to the table, right? So you can show them what they think they wanted um, and hopefully uh, persuade them to go with something a little more, a little more responsible. So that's usually my approach. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I understand from even the junior level, it'd be always daunting to be able to speak your mind because it feels like you are maybe not knowledgeable enough, or it feels like you don't want to be the person who causes conflict. I think that's always a misunderstanding of the situation where like it looks as us versus them. 
designers versus the stakeholders when it's always it's us as in the whole team against the problem and presenting idea for a solution i think that's the direction that people need to think of like when they're great when they're having to cause some conflict but the thing is not all conflict is bad exactly exactly and yeah, not all conflict is bad. I think a lot of conflict is healthy and necessary to progress things forward. It's a natural, healthy tension. And sometimes that's exactly what you want, right? And I've, I've been lucky that I've had teams whose design leadership has said that, that we want folks to have uh, differing opinions. If we wanted a bunch of designers or stakeholders with the same opinion, why would we need more of them, right? You actually yeah, no. do want a d- difference of perspectives and have folks be in the weeds together think through it, challenge each other in those respectful ways. And then at the end of it, you come out with a better, more innovative and more hopefully responsible, ethical, all that good stuff solution. But yeah, alternatively, it could be argued that it's not conflict at all. It's just natural, not just like how innovation happens, right? And progress, so. Yeah, I know. (laughs) It it is really funny how... We look back on that and realize, wow, turns out that how, that's why we need a more walks of life to be able to see from different perspectives and be able to see some things that we don't actually know about. There's a lot of accessibility problems. The perfectly healthy person, as much as I can be, I don't understand the problems that colorblind people go through and yeah. having to like, I like very much have to learn about how I design my colors and my contrast between those things. So I actually worked with a colorblind designer before that was, wow, he really, I know it's funny. And as he opened my eyes to see the things that I wasn't seeing. Amazing. I love that. That's exactly it. That's exactly what it's about. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. That's how we go through all these innovation solutions. And that's all from these situations. It's, it's all really cool. And we're all human about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm also curious to know your thoughts on the criteria that you use to evaluate the success of a design project. Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I love that question because it, uh, it opens it up for interpretation or it gives mm-hmm. permission for it to be a little bit subjective, which I appreciate. Yeah. I think it's really easy to get lost in in the metrics, especially in the hyper growth world or just ecosystem, right? In tech where it's, okay, it, it moved this many numbers and brought in this many new users or engagement or clicks or eyeballs. And hey, that's business and that's important, right? At the end of the day, that's absolutely part of the work. So you can't shy mm-hmm. away from that. But I also think that the work is valuable in and of itself, right? So that means work that, maybe you were in the weeds with and did a lot of deep thinking and research and went through the whole shebang. And at the end of the day, it didn't shit, right? For reasons outside of your control. Maybe it was politics, maybe it was timing or got lost in the shuffle, reorgs, these things happen, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, the project didn't see the light of day. Does that mean it didn't happen? Like if a a design project falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, was it still still worth speaking on? I still think, yeah, I still think it's it's successful in and of itself, right? If you, I think, honored your design principles, whatever those might be, hopefully they're rooted in ethical practices and social justice and 
honoring the humanity of the users you're serving, all of these things. If it was rooted in those principles and values, if you maybe advocated for your users, all of this, I'm speaking for myself, right? This doesn't have to be your success criteria. The work was collaborative. It was thoughtful. It brought in users. It brought in other designers or stakeholders. It was truly like a, a, a team effort and was thoughtfully considered, and you just went through the work, were a good team member, all of these things. I mean, that's a success already. And I think anything else on top of that is just a huge plus. Obviously, it needs to serve the business and needs to move the needle. At the end of the day, that'll be inevitable. But if something happens, if it was an experiment, and maybe it wasn't successful, I actually almost think that's ironically a bigger success. I feel you learn so much more from quote-unquote failures than something that immediately hits it out of the park, right? Because you maybe don't investigate that as much. You need, you have no choice but to dig deep in, in the weeds of why something did not work. When it worked, you almost don't care about the details so much, or you, you don't always go through that process, right? You're like, oh, cool, it worked, whatever, awesome, we're all happy. But when it doesn't work, you're like, wait a second, why? Maybe we can tweak this, reconsider that. How can we go about this next time? So even that is a success, right? Objective failure, right? Which I think is interesting. All to say is, yeah, doing, going through the the work in a thoughtful, thorough way that, that you're proud of, you're proud to attach your name to, I would call that a success. Any project under that umbrella, a huge success. Yeah. Thank you for answering that question because it's one of the most common questions I get asked from my listeners. And oh. no, I struggle to answer that question myself because they don't like it when I say it depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very unsatisfying answer, but it's the truth. I hate how vague, I hate that it sounds like a cop-out, but it's also just very much true because there's always so many different ways that you can design something. And there's so many different things that can be a problem or a resource that you have. That's the reason why there is no design philosophy that fits everyone. There's exactly. no method. There's no method that will solve every single problem as it comes along. There's, there's just too much nuances and context and and restrictions that always uh, come up and you sometimes you just have to make do with what you have exactly 100 percent. yeah and also another pretty big topic that i love to hear your insight insight on is do you have any thoughts on how companies and the tech industry can foster a more inclusive environment that's a great question. Lead by example and like your teams, first and foremost, I was like a dead starter should be inclusive, right? Mm. And diverse from the forefront. So let's assume that as a standard, unfortunately it's not, but obviously inevitable first step. I don't think it's that simple. I think by virtue of having a diverse group of team members, that doesn't necessarily mean the culture will be inclusive, right? I think there's still some deep work that needs to happen, some intentional active work to be able to foster the psychologically safe environment that a true inclusive culture demands. I think that's making folks feel safe and empowered to speak mm -hmm. up. And if that's from their opinions on the work, maybe some healthy and respectful criticisms of that work or the workflow and 
bringing that to the forefront and then assuming it's collaborative instead of retaliative. All of these things, I mean, it, it really seeps into every single touch point of a team and a business. So it's tricky. It, it really, truly has to be in the, the company's DNA. Obviously, bringing people in from diverse groups and championing them, giving them, making sure that they're in positions, represented in positions of leadership to help spearhead that change is important. But at the end of the day, they don't feel supported or seen or safe in those spaces to actually help champion change, then it's tough. It, it, it just might not happen, right? So I think mm -hmm. through and through it, you have to walk the walk, but also chalk the talk is fine. But at the end of the day, you have to walk the walk as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I appreciate you trying to tackle this question because it, it is difficult. Even, even I struggled to answer that because it feels like it starts with the top. And I know that feels like a cop-out answer because that takes out of us what we can do out of the equation when there's always so much that we can do. Exactly. Exactly. As individuals. And I think putting the onus on individuals is also, yeah, a slippery slope, right? You can't bear that weight on your shoulders, like one singular person or group. That's also, you feel the tokenized employee or team member or group in the company that never works right so mm -hmm. it really has to be all-encompassing yes i know and there's always so many things that like people need to be considering about and also i'm curious to know are there any non-design influences that impact your creative process oh yeah absolutely definitely i really deeply consider context physical context when, when I'm designing. So I try to tap into the physical environment that someone might be in, might be experiencing either before, after, or during their experience with whatever it is I'm designing, whether, you know, that could be as granular as, as macro as, oh, they're outside or on public transport or on their sofa hanging out after work, or it could be in the weeds of, oh, maybe they just had a tough conversation or they're opening their phone for distraction. And that's the point. And then maybe they're seeking solace in something and trying to uplift their spirits, really tapping into, okay, like what physically might be happening to help in influence and yeah, the digital design behind that. So I think that's, that's a big one. First and foremost, let me see other non-design influences. I mean, design I adjacent, like still creative, good. but yeah, I, <laughs> I was, always I was gonna yeah, think of like other teams, misses, you know, things. Yeah, must be certainly in some part because I worked in, in the business, but in the music industry. So everything around the creative process of a musical release, if that's a single, an album, an EP, I'm obviously a very visual person. So live productions from it could be a one-off like gig to Baychella or very creative, creative music marketing. So Beyonce's Coachella documentary on Netflix. Now you have like Taylor Swift's era tour. I mean, it, there are so many uh, references that I pull from with creative music, making activations, marketing, and that process, music videos, storytelling, the fashion and costume design that goes, goes into that cinematography the lyrics themselves, right? It is a story, it is poetry, it is art. So tapping into that and having that be a source of inspiration 
to draw from. It seems very abstract, but I don't know. In my day to day, it's it's very, very close to me. So yeah, music and artists in general is something that I, I'm very often referencing when I work. Yeah, no, I'm all about uh, finding what empowers you and lead with it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And probably one of the biggest questions I ever get from my listeners, I love to hear from you is, are there any emerging trends or technologies? What advice do you have for people who want to enter the UX field, but come from a different background? Oh, man. It is, yeah, I think this is a great question. I would say, don't count yourself out. Don't self-select yourself out of the out of the races. I think you'd be surprised by how many transferable skills you'll you probably already have by stepping into design from another industry. That was certainly the case for me and any other career transitioner I know. I might be a little biased, but I do genuinely believe that that genuinely makes you a stronger candidate to have a different industry, different experiences, different people, different operators to to pull from those references. So I would say tap into that, right? What made you successful in your previous roles, in your previous industry, what you enjoyed about those industries, right? What got you excited and invigorated to go to work and show up every day to do your best work, why you're interested in design, right? I think that's a huge one. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in design for many reasons as well. I I use the metaphor of the puzzle pieces, but I really love the craft and the work itself, the process, being able to create something, I mean, a bit abstractly, digitally, but still with my hands, very tactile, having a quantitative body of work that I can point to and say like, oh, I did that. It's in someone's hands or someone's experiencing it. So answering those questions for yourself, what is it about design that brought you into the field in the first place. And yes, standing by that, right? Say it with your whole chest, say it proud, because before anyone else can believe it, you have to believe it first, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I think it's always very important to be self-aware of what you do know and what you don't know, and how can Mm -hmm. you build a bridge between them? Absolutely. I think that's all very important to know from the concept of like where we come from, but also the fact that it's very much possible. I've I've seen people come from completely different backgrounds. It's always, it always amazes me how it's possible, but it is. So I always like to say to my listeners, like, it's okay if you come from a completely irrelevant, it is very much possible to be a UX designer. 100%. And it's more relevant than you think. (laughs) Yeah, Absolutely. So as we're drawing a close to this episode, what's the best way to support what you're doing, Amy? Yes, the best way to support what I'm doing is to join along yourself. So Diversify Design, as you mentioned, is a free community supporting designers from underrepresented backgrounds. We support them through community building events, skill sharing, workshops, both virtual and IRL. We're hosting meetups. So very community centered through and through. We're also a job board. So connecting people with job opportunities, companies that are hiring are specifically championing underrepresented talent. That's hugely important. So they're rooted in those values as well. And we only get better the more people that join our mission. So allies are welcome as well. 
but especially if you're a BIPOC designer or someone from any marginalized group, be it college dropout, immigrant, career switcher, certainly definitely join us. And hopefully, yeah, you'll be able to partake in all of the exciting things that we're building. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I'll be joining as well. Please. Yeah, so yeah, because what, why not? I mean, if you enjoy what every, everything Amy has been saying, so I think it's a really good right. opportunity to be able to learn more about your background, be able to make friends in this industry. I think that's so important to have. Exactly. Absolutely. It's everything. I, I'm a huge proponent of like community and that's, yeah. I mean, as we talked about, like at the, at the heart of so much of what I do. So that's, yeah, those are, that's exactly the the core principle guiding diversify design as well. And what brings people there. And it's really great to see people connect and learn from each other. And yeah, we're just getting started. So join us. Yes, and uh, the link to join Diversified Design will be found in the show notes. So, also, Amy, any closing words you'd like our audience to know about? Any closing words? Hmm, stay deeply human. I always uh, go back to that. Identify what that means for you, whatever it might mean for you. It could be different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Live by that yourself in your own life and champion that in, in the work that you do. The world certainly needs more of that. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. I think that's very, very wise to always lead with because that's how we are solving our problems. And if you're not yeah. thinking about the, you know, the people the, that you're supporting first and foremost, then like you're missing the point of your job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Got to lead with humanity, more humanity yes. always. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Amy, for being here. Thank you for having me, Nick. Yes, please do support our guests. Until then, you just listen to the UX Grow podcast. I'm your host, Nick Mann. Thank you for listening. That concludes another episode of the UX Growth podcast. We appreciate your time with us today. If you found value in this discussion, we invite you to follow us on your preferred podcast platform or to connect with the host on LinkedIn. Before we part ways, we'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Pulsatic. If maintaining website uptime is on your radar, Pulsatic is a reliable solution. Receive real-time alerts during downtime, create informative status pages, and easily manage incidents. And the best part? Getting started requires no credit card. To support the show, we encourage you to visit our sponsor's link, which can be found along with other relevant links in the show notes. Until next time, continue your exploration, learning, and growth in the UX design field.